please turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. We're going to be looking at um, specifically at verses uh, 18 through 35, but we are going to back up and start in verse 13. And our message this morning is called The Seventh Plague, Stones from the Sky. And as you're turning to Exodus 9, please remember that all Scripture is breathed out by the living God. And it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people. Will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field and to save shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord. There has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease And there will be no more hail, so that you 
may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the emer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So when Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, your word says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless, those who, unless the Lord watches over the city, those who watch over the city watch over it in vain. Lord, our speaking and listening is in vain this morning. Unless you appear, unless you give us ears to hear the word as we just sang. So speak and give us ears to hear that we may listen and obey and delight in you. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. So last time... We were together, we learned, in my estimation, the most precious truth in the whole book of Exodus. We read it in verses 13 and following, that God could have freed Israel on day one, but he delayed. And the reason why is because the Exodus is mainly about showing God Dear congregation, what we need more than anything else in this world, more than water and food and shelter and clothing, is that we need to see God. Seeing the glory of God is the very substance of our lives. It's our food, it's our wealth, it's our inheritance, it's our everlasting honor, it's our everlasting joy. The, the ten plagues are about displaying the justice and mercy of God, the power and the grace of God. And if Israel had been released immediately on day one, it would have been to their ruin. It would have been to their ruin because more than anything else, Israel needed to be brought to to see him. If Israel had immediately been released, humanity would have been impoverished because seeing God and and praising God is the need of every man and woman and child. The Exodus is not mainly about freeing Israel, but about proclaiming the name of God in all the earth. And this seventh plague is no different. The, The main thing that's on display here is what we see about God. So we're going to see three things about God, that he is the seeker, 
that he is the sovereign and that he is the storm breaker. So let's look first of all how God is the seeker. Look with me, if you would, at verse 18. Yahweh here is speaking through Moses and he he says to Pharaoh, Behold, about this time tomorrow. Uh, This is something that our modern weathermen cannot do. They cannot predict the weather with such precision. This time, exactly tomorrow, and here's the threat. I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Egypt had been a nation approximately since 31 BC. So this was not merely the storm of the century. This was the storm of of nearly two millennia. Now, with this threat comes something new. Look at verse 19. Now, therefore, send, get. Um, Those of you familiar with grammar, this is a double imperative. It's a double command. Send, that's a command. Get, that's a command. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock. And all you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Who is God, refer- who is God giving these commands to here? It's not Israel. Because Israel is safe in Goshen. We know that from verse 26. He's issuing this command to the Egyptians themselves that they might be spared from this judgment. And this is, this is simply amazing because this is another uh, a reason for why God delayed the release. We know in, in, in the previous verses that God delayed the release so his power would be made known, but now we see that he's delaying the release so that his mercy could be made known. And, and on the Egyptians... He wanted to to save some of the very villains that had imprisoned his people. And this love towards the Egyptians is seen elsewhere in Scripture. In Isaiah 19.21, he says, And the Lord Lord will um, make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know that the Lord in that day and will worship him with sacrifice and offering, and they shall be called Egypt, my people. Turn with me real quick, just a a couple chapters ahead to Exodus 12, 37 and 38. Here is when Egypt, uh, when Israel departs from Egypt. And we read in Exodus 12, 37 and 38, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth about 600 Thousand men on foot, probably 2.5 million with women and children. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. Who, who was this mixed multitude? The Egyptians and other foreigners who believed in the Lord. And here in chapter 9, verse 19, God is commanding them to take cover to bring themselves and their animals inside because nothing in the field 
was going to survive. Look at verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Two groups. The first group feared the Lord. And that word in the Hebrew is often associated with, most often associated with, reverence and respect and worship. The second group, they didn't pay attention to the word. And that Hebrew word means they didn't bring it into their heart. First group obeyed God, the second group did not. The first group brought the word of the Lord into their heart. The second group did not. The first group escaped the judgment. The second group did not. And it's vital uh, to ask here, what made the difference between these two groups? Why did the first group fear the Lord? And someone might say, well, that's easy. They chose to believe God, and the other group chose not to believe God. Well, that's fair enough. But why did the first group choose to believe? Was it because that these particular Egyptians were more righteous and more intelligent and more humble than their neighbors? Is that why you are a believer? Because you chose right and your neighbor didn't? Certainly not. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why then do you boast if you did not receive it? See, these Egyptians believed the Lord because God had granted them the grace of salvation. We don't read one part of the Bible divorced from the rest of the Bible. We read it all together. Um, This is what God says about how we are saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. This faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And this is so important to to emphasize here because what is on display here is not the the, the great choices of these Egyptians. What's on display here is the merciful God who loves to save lost sinners. The Bible is so clear here. Sinners do not seek after God. It's God. God that, that seeks after sinners. Um, Romans 3, 10 through 11, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. But, but God is the great seeker of sinners. Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. The Egyptians escaped this judgment because the Lord sought them. 
Dear congregation, this is, the, this is the beating heart of Reformed theology, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Every part of it, every single part of it. Did you believe? That part belonged to the Lord. Did you repent? That part belonged to the Lord. The Lord commanded in verse 19, now therefore send, get, and that command created belief in these Egyptians. And that's what creates belief in us. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God's commanding word created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, and his commanding word creates those who fear the Lord today. And that brings us then to our first principle. Even in judgment, even in wrath, God seeks to save sinners. We have to, I, I think we're all convinced at this point that this judgment on the Egyptians was well-deserved. Let's recap. They broke their covenant with Israel, they brutalized Israel, they enslaved Israel, and they killed their male sons. They sinned against conscience, they sinned against the light of nature, and they sinned against the repeated command of Moses the prophet. They didn't deserve any more warnings. And, what is, and yet, what is God doing here? In the midst of this judgment, he's seeking to show them mercy. This is how Scripture represents um, God over and over and over again. Consider just one example. Let's turn to to Jonah chapter 3. Children, boys and girls, uh, do you know that, that... the prophets in the Old Testament especially often got mad at God. They got the, the, so the most holy men in Israel got mad at God. Jeremiah is, is one example. Every time Jeremiah opened his mouth to speak, he suffered for it. He spoke the words of God and the people of God did not want to hear it. At one point, they threw him in this cistern uh, and he got... Um, buried in mud, and he would have died had he not been rescued. And, and this was one of the many occasions where he expressed anger at God. But Jonah got mad at God for a completely different reason. Boys and girls, do you know why Jonah got mad at God? Well, remember that he was sent to preach to Nineveh, which was a really wicked city that brutalized and killed God's people. He had one simple message. I think this was maybe the shortest preaching circuit in the Bible. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. He preached that for 24 hours walking through the city. But then something miraculous happens. The people of Nineveh repented, and they turned to the Lord. And then we read in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's why Jonah was mad. Look, 
Look at chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah was angry because God showed mercy to his enemies. That's why he ran away. Because he knew that this God, this God of Israel, loved to seek and to save sinners. Dear congregation, do you, do you, do you know how much comfort flows from this fountain? Examine your life. Who are you? Who, who am I that God would ever seek after us? What is man, the psalmist says, that you are mindful of him? Why does God care about us? It's not in us. The Bible says repeatedly things like this, that we are a drop in the bucket. We are dust on the scales, Isaiah 4. 4015. Psalm 39.5 says that we are nothing before him. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were born dead in our trespasses and our sins. Romans 5.10 says that we are his enemies. God doesn't seek us because of something that's inside of us. And that should bring great comfort to you. Especially those of you who are worried, uh, who are filled with anxiety about whether you have done enough for God to love you. No, you have not. You've not done enough for God to love you. You never will. God did not seek you because of something that he saw in you. He sought you because of something that was in him, because of his greatness. And when the... The biblical authors see this. this. These are the types of things that they say. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions. Deuteronomy 33, 26. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help. 1 Kings 8, 23, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants. Psalm 35, 10, all my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Dear congregation, God seeks sinners like us because... He is great, not we. Because he is incomparably great. He is infinite in love and he is immutable in covenant. And that's our first point. That even in judgment, God seeks to save sinners. Let's look secondly 
at how God is sovereign. Now remember that these plagues are in three series of three. The first three in in a series, the second three, and then the third three. The tenth plague is set apart all by itself. And this seventh plague begins the last series of three plagues. The first six showed how God was Lord over the earth, but these last three show how God is Lord over the heavens. Look with me at verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Now we've said that these plagues get progressively worse. And for those of you who've heard the other plagues, it, you've been in a hailstorm before and you might think, I don't know how this plague was worse than some of the other ones that we saw. But the terror of this plague cannot be overstated. I mean, just look with your mind's eye at the landscape of it. The sky would have been ominously dark with the storm clouds. There would have been crackling and deafening thunder. Psalm 29.3 calls thunder the voice of God. So the voice of God was all over the sky. There were fiery lightning bolts that were exploding on the earth, um, causing ground lightning. Um, ground lightning occurs when the electrical discharge from a lightning bolt travels along the surface of the earth. I, I googled this, and there's actually pictures of uh, where ground lightning has scarred the earth with this blackened uh, spider web of scorch marks. Verse 23 says that fire ran down on the earth. And the text suggests that this thunder and lightning was happening right on top of one another, um, one after another, crackling. So the, the, the sound was just thunder in the sky, nonstop. Verse 24, the f- fire was flashing continually. Remember that in the Reformation that it was a lightning storm that had terrified Martin Luther so badly that he committed his life to God. But this was not a mere lightning storm. Verse 24 says that there was very heavy hail. There were stones falling from the sky. How how big would these stones had to have been? Well, verse 25 said they had to be big enough to flatten every plant of the field Uh, Verse 31 says that all of their grain for food that had already budded was destroyed. Additionally, these stones had to have been so big that they broke every tree of the field. I mean, what kind of trees do you have in your front yard, backyard? What, What kind of stone would it take to break those trees? And verse 25 says they killed both man and beast. They, they were so large that they were able to take out cows and horses and camels, mules and men right where they stand. Every living thing 
that remained outside perished. And this was certainly the worst plague so far because this plague, unlike the other ones, actually killed Egyptians. The previous plague robbed them of their comfort and their property, but this plague took their very lives. And so terrible was this plague that for the first time probably ever, Pharaoh confessed that he had sinned. Look at verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord. For there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Now we know that Pharaoh lied. When the, when the hail stopped, he hardened his heart again, verses 34 and 35. This was a forced confession. This happens often. Many sinners, when they find themselves in a desperate situation, they confess their sin, they promise to reform their life, and when the pressure is off, they go back to their wicked ways. Now, Moses knew that Pharaoh was not truly repentant, but that didn't stop him from praying for him. Look at verses 29 and 30. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. I'm I'm struck as as a pastor, I, I spend time praying for others and I'm very conflicted when someone asks me to pray for them and I, and I know, I, I, I just know in my knower that they're faking it, they're not repentant at all. Moses knew. He says it. I know you don't fear the Lord, but, but he still prays for him anyway. So, so why does Moses pray for the hail to stop if he knew that Pharaoh was faking it? Because the end of verse 25 says... That Moses wanted Pharaoh to know that the earth was the Lord's. This is a recurring theme in the book of Exodus. I'm doing this so that you know. And we have, we've seen five similar statements from the previous plagues. And all of these statements have been building upon each other. So just, just follow me quickly. Uh, you don't have to turn here, but just listen. Exodus 7, 17, God did this so that Pharaoh would know he is Yahweh. Chapter 8, verse 10, so that Pharaoh would know there is no one like Yahweh. Chapter 8, verse 22, so that Pharaoh would know that he is Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14, so that Pharaoh would know that there is none like Yahweh in all of the earth. And now we get here and it's different, it's unique. So that Pharaoh would know that the earth is Yahweh's. This is new. We haven't seen this yet. This is the very thing. This statement was the very thing that was in dispute. Egypt's gods, we've seen this. They were gods over particular things, over particular elements. 
They only have sovereignty over one thing. But here, Moses' message to Pharaoh was, God owns the world. One author puts it like this. Egypt's theology acknowledged the possibility of a powerful God to challenge Egypt. Any war between nations in the ancient world was believed to involve the gods of both nations. The idea that God might own part of the world or might legitimately have some claim on the Hebrews could be accepted by the Egyptians. But what was repugnant to them was the idea that God owned everything, end quote. That's why Pharaoh hardened his heart again. He could not accept the fact that God owned everything, the whole world, including himself. That brings us then to our second principle. The one idea that is vile to all sinners is that the Lord God is sovereign over all the earth. The one idea that is vile to all sinners is that the Lord God is sovereign over all the earth. The world does not care if you are religious. The world is very religious. The world says you can worship, you can believe in a higher power. You can believe in self-autonomy. You can believe in Allah, in Buddha, in Odin. You can believe in Zeus. But the one heresy is to believe that God is Lord over all and that every knee must bow and all must swear allegiance to him. This has always, without exception, been vile to the world. Consider... What happened when the apostles preached this message in the book of Acts? I think we read the book of Acts wrong sometimes. They were persecuted not because they were preaching Jesus. They were persecuted because they were preaching Jesus as king over every other god. Acts 16, 20 through 21, we read that the men of Philippi They seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And then we know that they were beat and then they were imprisoned. Why? What customs were they advocating that were unlawful? The custom that says that Jesus is the most high God. We read of a similar crisis in the city of Ephesus in Acts 19, 23 through 26. It says, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands 
are not God's. And a riot broke out in the city. Just like the Egyptian empire, the Roman empire hated the message that there is only one true God that owns the earth. And, and brothers and sisters, this, this message, it's this message that is hated today. And this is where we have to think very, very carefully. As Christians, our speech should never violate biblical standards. We should not be offensive like the world is offensive. But we must realize that if we're going to preach the gospel rightly, it will be offensive. The, the danger is that we could preach the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way where the world is not confronted with the crown rights of Jesus. D dear friends, I would argue that this is why our culture is in the shape that it's in. The church as a whole and I would include myself in this category, has preached a privatized gospel message. We've, we've largely treated Jesus like he's just one of the gods of Egypt, that he's just a god over the portion of the earth. That's not what the Bible says, that Jesus is king of kings. He's Lord of lords. Revelation 1.5 says that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We need to preach the whole Christ. Yes, he is our prophet, Thank God that he reveals the will of God for our salvation. And yes, thank God he is our priest, that he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. But here's the question, is he our king? Do we preach Jesus like Moses preached Yahweh? What did Moses require of Egypt? National repentance and obedience to the one true God. Your congregation, that's, that's the message of the Bible. Yes, it's offensive to the world, but it's true. The Lord God owns the earth. Pharaoh belonged to God. Egypt belonged to God. And America belongs to God. Every human being belongs to God. He has absolute ownership over all. And that means that he has sovereignty over every sphere of life. To apply that, this means that mothers and fathers cannot legally murder their babies because those are God's babies. It means that churches cannot embezzle money or worship however they like because that's God's money and God's worship. It means that human beings cannot mutilate their bodies to fit their own ideology because those are God's bodies. It means that civil government cannot make laws that abuse its people because all laws and all people belong to him. Our passage shows us that those who refuse this ownership of God over them, they, they perish. Only those who are in Goshen, those who belong to the Lord, will be spared. So that's our second point, that the Lord God owns the world. 
Let's look finally then at how God is the storm breaker. We have to look more closely at verse 29. Let's ask the question, what is God drawing our attention to in this verse? So look with me again. Moses said to Pharaoh, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. Do you see the emphasis here? The thunder will cease. The hail will cease so that you will know. In other words, it's not the destructive hail that that Moses is drawing our attention to. It's the fact that only God can make it stop. There's two miracles here. The hail and then the ceasing of the hail. Only God can cease the storm. And I think this is relevant because storms are representative of something in the Bible. There are three major storms in the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. In Genesis 7, 11, there's a storm that floods the entire earth. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were opened and all flesh died that moved on the earth. That's storm one. Secondly, in Genesis 19.24, there's a storm that burned up two cities. Then the, rain, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. And then here in Exodus 9, we see hailstones that killed every creature that was in the field, both man and beast. All three of these storms caused the death of millions of people. Certainly, storms can represent other things elsewhere in Scripture. They can represent trials and afflictions and spiritual warfare. But the Bible begins our understanding of storms by representing them as the wrath and the judgment of God. What Moses wanted Pharaoh to see is that only God himself could propitiate that wrath. No one else on earth can stop it. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Shouldn't surprise us that one of the things, the miracles that Jesus performed was stopping a storm. Matthew 8, verses 23 through 27. When Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. I don't don't know how you could sleep in a storm like this, but um, that's part of the humor of Scripture. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Two things to pay attention here. First, Jesus does not pray for the storm to stop. Moses had to go outside the city, lift his hands, intercede to God for the storm to stop. But in verse 26, Jesus simply woke up and rebuked the storm and said, peace be still. Second, this elicited a particular response from the disciples. In verse 27, they say, what sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. The disciples knew the Exodus story. They knew that only God could break the storm. What sort of man is this? I think oftentimes we, we struggle in our mind, well, where does Jesus claim to be God in Scripture? Everywhere. This was the God-man. The wind and the seas belonged to him. The storm belonged to him. All the earth belonged to him. He stopped the storm on that boat so that the world would know that the earth belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the owner of the world. I think that's such an amazing thought. We often are in wonder when we're in the presence of great and rich men. I just learned yesterday that uh, Jeff Bezos um, has not one, but two yachts. One great giant yacht and then another yacht that comes next to it so that he can land his helicopter on it. Bezos is one of the richest men in the world. We might think it'd be a wonderful thing to ride in his yacht. But here, these disciples were on this little fishing boat and on that boat with them was the owner of the world. Jesus owns the water that Bezos' yacht floats on. Jesus owns all the atoms that compose his yacht. He owns the soul of every person that rides on those yachts. But beloved, there's more. Jesus is not just the owner of the world. That would be great enough. There's something more that this stopping of the storm is pointing to. Jesus is the one who would propitiate the wrath of God on our behalf. To propitiate means that he satisfied God's wrath towards sin. Like Pharaoh, like the Egyptians, we all deserve the wrath of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we deserve the greatest storm that is yet to come, the lake of fire. But Jesus Christ, the sovereign owner of the world, the great seeker of sinners, has satisfied the wrath of God by crucifixion. And God has demonstrated that he was satisfied with that propitiation by raising him from the dead. And he who believes upon his name will never come under the judgment. Maybe that's you, dear friend, today. Have you believed upon the name of the great stormbreaker, Jesus Christ? 
He's promised an invincible and an immutable promise to you in Scripture. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has passed from death to life. He will not come into judgment, but he has eternal life. That's how the storm of God's wrath can be ended in your life by looking to Christ, by trusting in his name. And for the rest of us, dear congregation, this life is often full of soul-crushing storms and soul-exasperating afflictions. And maybe you're in a season like that right now. What ought you to do? Well, do what Moses did. Moses looked to the heavens. He lifted his eyes up to the heavens. Brothers and sisters, lift your eyes up to the heavens. Behold Christ, the owner of heaven and earth. Look to Christ who broke the storm of God's wrath on his own body on the tree. This is how we, we get through the storms of life, by, by looking to Christ who overcame the greatest storm. Look to Christ who rose from the dead for your victory. Look to Christ who sought you, though you never sought him, though you were his enemy. Look to Christ who seeks you still, though you are daily unfaithful to him. You don't live in Egypt. You live in Goshen. You live in the place where wrath will never fall. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Beloved, the storm has already been broken. Look to him. Trust in him. Hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is our great supplication this morning that you would help us to look to heaven, to look to Christ, our storm breaker, to see that every other storm, every other storm of affliction, every other storm of despair is swallowed up by what your son has done for us, that he has spoke peace, he rebuked the storm, that he suffered the wrath of God upon his own body so that we could be brought to you. So Lord, help us to look to those things not that are seen, but to those things that are unseen, or the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor. Amen.